So, what's happening now? Back again, and in the last week, what has been happening? Well, in American sport, the climax of the NFL season saw the Chiefs beat the 49ers in an event that continues to get more attention in Britain than ever before. Even if not everyone is super bowled over by it. Yep. Yeah. Closer to home, three by-election campaigns gather pace across the country. And even closer to home, if we're talking about my grandma's house in Greater Manchester, the Rochdale contest gathered enough pace to veer off the road into a ditch. The, through the ditch, into a field, bursting into flames, and then somehow veering back onto the road and causing a pile-up. What's wild is, I want What's Happening Now to be sure where we can find the positives in politics. Where we don't just kick for convenience, going, oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, aren't politicians terrible? So I won't say they're terrible. But what we will say is that the voters of that town now face a choice. Where the Labour candidate isn't even supported by Labour. Where the Green candidate isn't actually supported by the Greens. Where the Reform candidate used to be a Labour MP until explicit messages to a 17-year-old were revealed. Where one candidate is a monster raving loony and where one, perhaps worst of all, is George Galloway. So, Super Bowl and super depressing. And as ever, the news is punctuated by the worst kind of blots on society. Crime. Big crime. Little crime. Crime that uh, is really truly awful to read about now. But give it six months and you'll absolutely binge the podcast. Stories come up to bring us down and often it feels like the conversation falls behind news about the NHS, war, sport, or, with the Oscars drawing near, even just crimes against fashion. So this week, we're asking what's happening now with crime. And while the closest we've got to joining a gang is taking an online quiz to find which Harry Potter house we're in, I'm joined as ever by my partner in crime, James O'Malley, a man who couldn't get into Slytherin if he tried. James, watcher. Watcher. Uh, I gave you homework last week, James, in uh, in preparation for the mm. crime episode to do something juicy, to come back and say, when I say, James, how's your week? You go, whoa, be ready for this. James, how was your week? My, my week was fine. What did I do? Oh, I, I want to say I went skydiving or something. But oh I my didn't. God, did you go skydiving? Oh, I can pretend I did. Yeah, it was... It- I, didn't, I wasn't terrified. Everyone survived. That's what you want from a skydive. Talk me through the experience of skydiving. Plane took off. Yeah. And then I left the plane through a different manner. Okay. And then I landed. And then, if I recall correctly, on landing, I was handed the Nobel Prize. And everyone I walked past just went, Check, you're so clever and intellectual and brilliant. <laughs> and and then uh, my mum gave you a pat on the head and well, said, we do love you. So um, even in this wild fantasy, your mum's there telling me that she yeah. loves you. Okay. <laughs> um, that was a big week. Uh, and, and I have no idea if it's true or not. That I was feel a bit like... dark, didn't it? I don't know where I was going with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why I cut you off. This could have carried on and we can reel and ravel on radio. So what is happening now? We've got a busy show this week, James. We're not going to mm. go through every story under the sun, but there's one that, that's popped up for us today that has grabbed our attention. What We're going to talk about trains. We're going to talk about trains. We could not talk about anything else. I feel like if it was a vote, you would cast your vote in favour of trains. And do you know what? I'm with you. Mm. 
What is the latest in train news? If you're in London or the environs, you'll know the London Overground, the big orange set of lines. They're a big old mess because they go everywhere and it's basically one name, London Overground, that covers basically the entire outer orbit of the city. It's very confusing because you'll see signs around London that's on the TFL website that say there's minor delays or significant delays on the London Overground. And that could be anywhere. It could be in northwest London. It could be in southeast London. Chaos. Uh, it could be chaotic. The Mayor Sadiq Khan has finally announced after years and years of rumours in the train community. Um, Underground chit-chat. Exactly. Oh, no pun. All of the guys in the Anoraks have been talking about this for years. Finally, after all of these years, they're going to give individual names to the individual lines on the London Overground. So there's six lines in total. They're going to be different colours on the tube map. They're going to be just two parallel lines rather than a solid line like an underground line. This Um, feels like it can only go terribly. Adding different colours to an already colourful map and the invention of new names, (laughs) people, people are going to be split. Have you heard the names? Do you want me to give you the names? I want to get your reaction yeah, to each of them. Okay. Go on. So the Watford Junction to Euston line is going to be called the Lioness Line, named after the women's national football team because the line goes through Wembley. Is it the closest to Wembley Stadium? I think it's one of the closest to one Wembley of, Stadium. One of the closest. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. I, I'm not, I don't know. I think I should have maybe given it a bit longer to find, make sure it stays in the historic memory a bit, but whatever. I think yeah. that's fine. Then we've got the Mild May Line. Uh, Mildmay, I'm not entirely sure how you pronounce that. This is the Stratford to Richmond and Clapham Junction bit of the overground. And it's named after an HIV charity and hospital that was played a big role in that crisis in the 80s. So Lioness and Mildmay. Mildmay. Uh, we've got, this is my favourite one, the oh, Windrush yeah. Line, oh, yeah. uh, which is going to be the Highbury Islington to Clapham Junction. So basically the old East London line, but the bit goes to Newcross. And the thinking here is, so obviously Windrush, it references uh, the, the Caribbean communities who now moved to London on the famous Windrush ship. Um, a lot of them live uh, on this line. And I think this is a really great name because it's got this, it's a nod to history. It's a good, memorable name. It's definitely enduring in terms of a historical reference. And also it references is my means of transport and that's know, what the train is yeah I'm with you so far yeah Windrush works for me the other yeah. two mm. uh, we've got three more we've got the Weaver line which is one of the overground lines out of Liverpool streets named after because Sigourney Weaver sadly not no oh. this is because apparently that part of London known for the textile trade Fair enough. I did not know that. And this this one, do you know the, the overground line uh, that goes between Gospel Oak and Barking Riverside? It goes basically all the way across North London. I don't know. I'm aware it exists. And for years, it's been nicknamed as the Goblin because it's Gospel Oak to Barking, which I think would have been a really cool na- oh, I name. I love this, the Goblin line. The Goblin line, but sadly they've not gone for it. Uh, they've gone for the Suffragette line um, to reference, obviously, the heritage of <laughs> women fighting for votes. Right. I'm, I'll be honest, I think they should have gone, just, just in terms of, Name the way you say the word, and obviously this is entirely subjective, and at risk of sounding like Jordan Peterson. Yeah. Uh, no, I think they should have named it after some like so, like someone like uh, Emily Pankhurst or something like that. It's just a weird word to say as a name for a line. Also, it's quite. Mm, yeah, I don't love that. It's mm. it's it's a specific section of the movement, right? So it could have been suffragists. It could well, have been suff- mm. the suffrage line, the suffrage line. This like- is interesting. So the suffragists back in the olden days were the ones who arguably actually got uh, women the vote, and it was a, the suffragettes were like the loud activists who were smashing windows and going on hunger strikes and things. Right. But it was the suffragists who finally got it through Parliament. Oh, so, so that, um, that really feels that's the line to protest. If is it like a magnet? Is it trying to draw people to go? In? If you're going to protest on the <laughs> overground, come here and do it. 
Yeah, um, I, w- I would have thought every sort of feminist protest now is going to have to go along this sort of tube line. And then the last one, and this is funny because I get the impression that, that TFL was sitting in the boardroom thinking, we really need a name for this line. And this is a tiny little overground line. This links Romford and Upminster. It's like literally three stops up in East London. Okay. And they've called it the Liberty Line. And the reason why, you think, what, what's the historical resonance of that? And it goes, and the official documentation from TFL says it references the freedom that is defi- a defining feature of London and the historical independence of the the people of Havering. Pardon? I'll, I'll say it again. The historical independence of the people of Havering. Yeah, you can say it again if you want, but I'd, it, what? Yeah, I'm not entirely sure. I think it's just because this is the other line that very few people actually use. And I think Havering may have decla- tried to declare its own sort of independence from Greater London over the years, uh, like having their own sort of mini Havering-style Brexits from the rest of London. Uh, but even then, it just seems a bit weak. Surely you can come up with something else. Just There must be someone from London who lives around that way. Listen... This is quite a difficult moment for us. Mm. I don't love that selection. And I feel like I should. I feel like I'm the target audience to go, yeah, I like that. I like Windrush. Mm. And that's it. I think. Yeah, Windrush, I think, is, is the easily slam dunk. That's the slam dunk name. The others, I think, yeah, I'm not an enormous fan of them. Uh, I think, I, although saying that, I know exactly, as soon as the, this news of the, the new lines, it, it's going to hit the Daily Mail, it's going to hit GB News, and when uh, we're inevitably going to have a big old culture war fight. Do you know what? About, com- confusingly, yeah. I, I can, they feel a bit too woke for me. Ooh, get you. I, I don't know how this is happening, but look, I, like, I like the lionesses. I love mm. the Windrush line, but Liberty... What was the other one? Uh, Weaver fine. line. That's the Liberty line, the Suffragette line. Yeah, Suffragette feels quite, yeah, could have been something else. Congratulations to the newly named lines and I hope people like them. I do not. This is the moment we pivot to being a dangerous, anti-woke podcast. But, yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> how you get the hits. Yeah. Ne- next week, we're going to have someone to explain why vaccines don't work. And then the week after, we're going to be explaining we've been why rad- women should get back in the kitchen. Yeah, we've been radicalised by a couple of uh, train conversations. Okay, fine. Hello, Emmy. Oh, hey, Ben. Have you heard that Sam and James are doing a podcast about crime? That is the word on the street. Well, I think we should let them know. Crime doesn't pay. Unless you're hosting a podcast about it. Oh, yeah. Or you're a Tinder swindler. Yeah, or or you're a Jack the Ripper tour guide. Or you're friends with a government minister during an international pandemic. Or, actually... You're friends with a government minister full stop. Fair. Or you wrote Baby Shark. Do, 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 do. Or your sexy little mugshot land you a modelling contract. Mmm, yeah, sexy. Or you're a gangster, like Tony Soprano. Gabagool. Or a sugar-pushing big cat, like Tony the Tiger. Great. Or... Tony's host, James Corden. I think that's the worst one, actually. Some of those numbers were criminal. Actually, I I take it back. Crime pays, and quite a lot. Yeah, you're right. Anyway, let's get on with the show. So, accusation there that crime may or may not pay. James, you had a story in your personal substack this week about people who've been getting away with... Not murder, but getting, getting away with crimes 
on the London Underground this week. Yeah, I think this is sort of amazing. So uh, Transport for London, who run the London Underground network, uh, it turns out over the past uh, couple of years, they've been running an experiment at Wilsdon Green Tube Station, and they've been turning it into this basically this 1984 panopticon of surveillance. Sounds terrifying. Um, where, so to try and stop the criminals. Basically, they hooked up all of the CCTV cameras inside the tube station to an sort of AI image recognition system. And basically, they programmed it to spot all sorts of things happening around the station. And this goes from if someone just falls over and they fall onto the floor, theoretically, this system should spot them and it will send a notification to the iPad of the, the customer services person at the station saying, oh, go and help that person. So it could help with stuff like that. So not you've been framed, actually a helpful thing. It'll be, oh, they've taken a tumble. If I was TFL, TFL's finances are not good. I'd have it automatically send the video file in so you've been framed, get that 250 quid, bank that, <laughs> put it back into improving the tube station. That's such an old reference um, that we're going with today, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, this whole system can theoretically help spot crime and stuff. It was implemented um, with the idea that it will be able to stop fair evasion. So people uh, jumping over the ticket barriers, pushing through the ticket barriers, even crawling under the ticket barriers. And apparently... Do people do that? Do people well, crawl under the, cricket, the, this, the ticket barriers? This, this surprised me, but in TFL's documents, they really released uh, to me about this. This is what they said might happen. Though, funnily enough, it did find it. So these cameras basically got to try and identify people who are going through the barriers incorrectly or illegitimately. And it found out that it was... Actually, <laughs> Incorrect or yeah. illegitimate, like it, walking backwards or in a, in a funny <laughs> outfit. Or like, that's not legitimate. Well, there, was, there was loads of false positives. So it was identifying children going through. And basically, they had to reprogram it halfway through the trial to say, if anyone, if someone's walking through and they're lower than the barrier, just assume they're a kid. And don't. So if you're a short person, if you're Rishi Sunak, don't bother paying for the tube, just walk <laughs> straight through. You won't get in trouble um, okay. if these AI cameras are watching. But theoretically, they can do so much more than that. So they can theoretically spot fair evasion, but they can also do violent crime. They actually, when they trained the AI system, so when you train an AI, you've got to show it examples of what to look for. They actually got a British transport police officer to go around the station with a gun and a knife to sort of teach the cameras what a gun and a knife look like. That was an eventful day for um, passengers, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, th- <laughs> I hope they did it out of hours. Uh, yeah, I hope so. Otherwise, that would be a bit strange. And then also, in terms of sort of violence crime, this is the really interesting thing. They tried to make so these cameras could spot like aggressive behaviour. But then what does that look like? And they couldn't quite do it. So they realised that they can. there's a way around it. There's a sort of trick they can use, which is if they just programme these cameras to sort of raise the alarm, if someone raises both of their arms in the air, that's quite a good sort of proxy for something violent happening. Because, you know, if someone's raising both their hands in the air, they're probably shouting or angry or just saying, oh, no, don't shoot or something dark like that. You know? Never mind you've been framed, but two hands up in the air, like hands up, don't shoot, also mm. feels like oldie worldy, but that needs to be universally recognised as it. That's the message. Yeah, so this is like the beacon, though. If someone does that in this tube station during this trial, and if they roll out further, uh, that could be what then, you know, flags up to the station staff and I guess the police officers eventually to say, hey, something might be going down, go and have a look. Right. But the really inter- this is the really clever thing I think about this, right? So tube stations, if someone's being threatened or something, if you're a member of staff and you're, you're feeling threatened and you can't radio for help because, I don't know, someone's threatening you or, ra- you know, yeah. you could just literally raise your hands as a, a completely normal thing and then that will itself act as like the trigger for the alarm system so it's almost like an extra layer of safety for the staff as well so it's a really clever system and obviously there's a sort of bigger conversation about do we want all these cameras watching us and doing all this behavioral monitoring it seems a bit creepy and do you want the cameras watching you 
I feel a bit very mixed about it because the trouble is, this is you such feel a flattered. It's nice to be wanted. Exactly, but it's just it's such a clever idea to because all the all this is it's, and it's quite it's relatively cheap as these things go because it's not like you need a custom made thing to detect all of these things because it's just software. So once you've got the cameras hooked up to this one system that you paid for once, you can train it to theoretically watch for all of these different types of things and do loads of useful things, whether it's spotting crime and whatnot. You can actually and you can even make it spot littering if you really want to clamp down on littering. Yeah. you can spot discarded newspapers and coffee cups. Well, the expense comes, doesn't it, when you have to build a robot army to send in when the crime's been identified, mm. and that's the next step, I assume. That's pro- that's probably phase two. Once they've funded Crossrail 2, I imagine that's going to be next on the agenda. How wild would that be that all infrastructure projects were shelved apart from building a robot army to police <laughs> tube stations? I'd probably question Sadiq Khan's uh, priorities there, but uh, maybe, that, maybe that could be the next step. If you listen to some people, it's on his agenda. Uh, he's that controlling. <laughs> So I was thinking about crime as an issue, and I was thinking the only time I've really been a victim of crime was when I had my phone stolen out of my pocket in a mosh pit at a gig. It definitely didn't just fall out as you were moshing too vigorously. No, I was dancing away, living it vicariously in the moment, as you can imagine I do. Okay. And no, I just felt this hand go into my pocket. I was like, that's probably just a normal thing. Oh, no, it was someone stealing my phone. Oh. And the worst thing is, this was the days before fingerprint scanners, so Sorry. I didn't bother having a passcode on my phone. Just to pull you back for a minute mm. there, you, felt a ha- you actually felt the hand go into your pocket and went, that's fine. I, I, yeah, I just thought this, because I was smushed up against all these other people in the sure. pit, I just thought this is probably just fine. When you're smushing, hands get everywhere. Yeah. Quite. I mean, have you, have you ever experienced crime? Um, Not quite to the same degree. I, in London, I had, do you know what? I had a traumatic experience of the week. We had some dog food stolen. Oh. Yep. We had a parcel outside, which was a big box of dog food, and it was taken. And it's the thing on our street right now that old parcels can't be left outside for long because mm. they get, I think we've been identified as quite quiet and easy pickings, mm. and parcels get taken very quickly. There was a lady at Christmas left out some chocolates for the bin men, and within 10 mm. minutes they'd been taken by somebody. And because everyone's got ring doorbells now mm. to identify it, it, it keeps happening. People see people just wandering around checking out for parcels and taking them. The neighbourhood WhatsApp group is ablaze. <laughs> Uh, but my, my crime days have moved on. That is, that's quite a gentle version. Now, I should I admit this? Yeah, okay. The two... <laughs> Who did you kill? No, I'll, uh, two crime instances for me. Mm. Guess which one's true and guess which one's false. Okay. I have walked into a police station to hand myself in for crime. And secondly, I was taken hostage once. Oh, my God. Yeah, juicy. Which oh one's true? Which God. one's false, James? Is this a true question? Are both true? Are you, have both you are the, true. Oh, my God. Both are true. Unrelated. We've only got a short show. I probably shouldn't go to both. But, yeah, one of them was a prank at university. My my mates persuaded me that I had a drink problem, pretended to be a policeman ringing me and said, you have to come in and, <laughs> and have some have some sessions because you're clearly struggling. And I went, yeah, I think I am struggling, yeah, as an 18-year-old. And so Sunday morning, 8 a.m., went into a police station and went, I'm here to hand myself in for the, for, the, for, the, for the session. And the lady at the desk went, what? I went, yeah, I spoke to the officer yesterday and he's concerned. And frankly, I'm concerned as well. Sat there for an hour on a Sunday morning. <laughs> so that that was a dark day for, for everyone involved, me. And then, yeah, I, also, I... Someone's dining out on that anecdote for the rest of their life. That's oh, incredible. Yeah, they were very proud of themselves. Good. And I respect it. And the other one was, yeah, I was mugged, but I just dragged it out. I, I blame myself. <laughs> I kept talking to these two lads. It ended up, we went around for about three hours to different shops as they're trying to get me to give them money and buy them things. And oh my God. And I was quite chatty. I was, it's nice to make friends, isn't it? And in the end, they, yeah, they went on trial and went to prison for hostage taking. So, 
you sort of win. Light anecdote there, yeah. That's my life of crime, James you've, O'Malley. You've blown my mind there. That's a song. I do think there was something, when you were saying about the the, the neighbourhood WhatsApp group or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I should have I, probably left that until last. That wasn't, I don't know if that was a big start or any easing us into my... Yeah, uh, I just want to say, I think my big theory of why crime feels like such a salient issue, and I think it probably has uh, sort of increased, I was looking at the stats, uh, since uh, post-pandemic, it's the highest it's been post-pandemic at the moment, um, according to sort of recorded figures. But I think part of it, my, my grand theory of this, my grand unevidenced theory of this, so okay. scientists shoot me down, is that because everyone's got these ring doorbells and because everyone's on these neighbourhood Facebook groups, it's basically making everyone well aware of everything going on in the neighbourhoods in a way it's not been before. So like where I live, if there's some just ne'er-do-wells anywhere yeah, in the yeah. local area, there'll be, yeah, there'll be people who'll be posting ring doorbell footage going, does anyone know who these are? Does anyone know who these are? What's going on? It's late, right? We're having, mm. We've been having a lot of crime recently, but nothing gets done about it. And mm. it's always retrospective. It's always people look back and find the footage. Mm. One person tells the group and then we look back 24 hours and find it. But yeah, it keeps happening. Yeah, and, and I think there's I think there's also the other interesting thing. I'm just extemporising about crime now, actually. No, this is what uh, this podcast no, is always going to be. But it, it does seem that there's less sort of enforcement of it. Uh, again, my, my local co-op, if you listen to the, the WhatsApp groups, people just walk in and take things and there's no sort of worrying whatsoever. But I also think the other interesting thing about this is in terms of like incentives to do crimes like this if you're shoplifting or something like that. Now we've got the internet. It's much easier to distribute. If you stole a box of stuff uh, beforehand, how would you get rid of your 20 bottles of deodorant or something? Yeah. Uh, now you can just put it on Facebook Marketplace and go, oh, I just happen to have all of this stuff that looks like it's from Sainsbury's or something. But Look, mm. we can sit here all day and talk about our experiences of, of crime, but we spoke to somebody a little bit more qualified, or two people a little bit more mm. qualified. First, I sat down with Tia Dondi, journalist, investigative reporter, documentary maker, who has recently had a piece called Hunting the Rolex Rippers, which is on BBC iPlay now. It's an amazing documentary about the gangs in London ripping Rolexes. Really, the name is in the title. People stealing fancy watches on the streets of London. And I asked her why people in those gangs were willing to speak to her. I think that they were willing to tell the story because of a sense of bravado, definitely. I think a lot of them want to show off. And I think that it is a way, because obviously all of these people are quite underground, it's a way of them, yeah, telling their story, which otherwise wouldn't be heard. But for instance, there was a 16-year-old boy, the boy who robbed Alid Jones. He actually reached out to me on Instagram and he contacted me. So that wasn't even me reaching out to him. And yeah, I think it was more just they'd seen my work on Vice. I think with journalists... Most of the time you need to be quite neutral. I work a lot with these young kids and they are young kids. They're, some of them are below 16. And I know that a lot of them carry knives because if they don't, they can't protect themselves. It's a bit of a vicious cycle. In the documentary, we learned that firstly, the, the gangs, they're getting younger. So some of them start when they're as young as 11, 12 which is so young. And we also learned that they're getting increasingly violent. They carry machetes with them, swords, knives, and some of them are 13 inches long. Up until recently, you could just purchase a zombie knife on Amazon and it would arrive the next day. That's how easy they are to purchase. And they're built to destroy. They have jagged edges. Once you stab someone with them and you pull it out, it can rip their skin. It is scary, and I and I did see some of some of the knives that they were carrying, and they are extremely large. Like nobody needs to be carrying an extremely large knife like that, even for self defence. 
So amazing to talk to Tia, really interesting. The whole interview is in our newsletter and on our YouTube channel. And her documentary is on BBC iPlay now, Hunting the Rolex Rippers. It's a really extraordinary watch. Uh, the the end is an extraordinary watch. Oh, very good. That was that was not deliberate, but I'm going to claim it was. Um, but it really is worth checking out. the The ending there's a it's not a quite a twist, but it sort of escalates to a point where you think, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually asked Tia what she thought of it, and she basically said, holy shit as well. So yeah, check yeah. out the interview. Check out the uh, documentary. Really, really interesting. James, mm. why are these stories? not bigger, I guess, is my question mm. to you. It feels it feels to me that things like the NHS, schools, mm. foreign policy, the climate are bigger deals in the news and the day-to-day conversation. And, and mm. politically, with an election this year, why do I not really have a sense of where we're at with crime? Yeah, you're absolutely right, actually, with those issues. Because if you look at YouGov's polling, so YouGov, they send out a, a poll every once in a while saying, what issues do you care most about? And the top polling issue is, of course, the economy. 51% of people care about that. 46% of people care about health. This is in the most recent survey, which was a few weeks ago, I think. Then immigration and asylum, 38% of people. Crime, only 20% of people identify that as one of the sort of key issues. It's about equivalent in importance in people's minds to housing. So um, people get a few choices in that, and they, mm. so they can't just say one thing, and they still don't say crime. Twenty, we say twenty-two, twenty percent mm. of people. Yeah, say they crime. can they can pick up to three different issues. Right. So I guess crime is that second tier of sort of level of importance. Do you know what they've not had any dog food stolen recently <laughs> or been taken hostage? I guess. Mm. Uh, but why is that, and why do politicians not fight it as a as an issue to make people more aware of? I think it could become uh, a bigger issue, but I guess the the political reason it's not a bigger issue at the moment is basically because the Conservatives don't want to talk about it because as part of the Conservative government over the last 13 years or 14 years now, the number of police officers has been cut, so they don't really have a particularly good story to tell there. And whereas Labour aren't talking about it, I think Labour do talk about it a bit because Keir Starmer likes to play up his, I was the, the DPP, the Director of Public Prosecutions, I was banging up the crims is, is, you know, is basically his message because it makes he him sound tough. He is always going on about um, banging up the crims. And, but they've also got another bigger issue. I, th- I think ultimately it is literally just because the economy is such a big thing right now. If you're campaigning and want to make a difference, if you can say something about the economy and hit them on that, that's probably just a more salient issue in the same way that nobody talks about Brexit these days, even though a few years ago Brexit felt like the most important thing in the world. Uh, now it's happened and in my view has made everything worse, but nobody cares anymore. It's like really low down there in terms of a le- level of of importance. So it's just going to take, this is horrible to say, next time there's some sort of horrible murder or something like that, crime will probably increase in salience. Mm. But it will just depend on the balance of issues because ultimately sort of attention and caring is zero sum, I think. To get a different perspective, I also spoke to the former police officer, Paul Hogarth, and asked him a couple of questions about his experience with the police. Paul, thanks for speaking to us today. My first question to you is, you were in the police for 30 years, right? Looking back, how do you feel about that now? When people talk about defunding the police, do you think the relationship between the force and society is broken? I look back on my time in the police uh, with great fondness. I had a fantastic time, made some great friends, had some incredible experiences, and it's given me uh, many transferable skills that I've been able to use since I've left. I... In my opinion, I don't think that people generally want the police defunded. In general, I think that the public are very supportive of the police. And in fact, probably would like the police to be a little bit more robust sometimes. However, I do think that there have been certain issues with trust recently, which we might touch on a bit later, which have caused an issue. And I think that building that confidence 
between the public and the police is uh, something that really needs to happen. We heard from Tia Dondi earlier who had found some gangs were getting younger, more weaponized, and behaving differently with things like social media. You now work training new police recruits. As crime evolves, what challenges do those recruits face? What do they need to be ready for, both in society and in the police? So I do train new recruits and I have an enormous amount of empathy and probably sympathy for them um, in the current climate because it's uh, incumbent upon them now to uh, be rebuilding uh, trust that may be lost by the public due to uh, certain high-profile events that have happened in the, in the recent past. So there's a big onus on them to do that, which is very difficult to do. Crime also has become much more complex. There seems to be a lot more of it as well. And of course, uh, every member of the public uh, can be inverted commas a journalist these days. Everything that a police officer does uh, is likely uh, to be on social media very quickly. So they are under an enormous amount of scrutiny at all times, which means that their job has been made exponentially harder, I would suggest, uh, in the last uh, 10 to 15 years. So I have quite a lot of uh, sympathy for uh, new recruits. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I've chosen to do this job to uh, pass on some of the experience that I have and the other lecturers have uh, to ensure that they're able to do that. Bike theft, parcels being taken from doorsteps, stolen phones, even political allegations that are so delicate to investigate. Are there some crimes that are just not solvable and so have become effectively legal? The quick answer is no. There are no crimes or no crime types that I would suggest are unsolvable. There are certainly individual crimes that are unsolvable, but no crimes are so unsolvable that they are, they are seen as legal. Having said that, there is a big dependence on the capacity of each given force uh, as to what crimes they can uh, target at any given time. And also there will be, for want of a better term, what we might say as a flavor of the month, what if crime is particularly high profile uh, and you might find that more resources are spent on those crimes and less resources on other crimes. Ultimately, how much of this comes back to drugs? I think drugs is a big problem. Do I think it's the biggest problem in society? Possibly not. It certainly impacts most crime types. If you think that there are three major crime types, that would be acquisitive crime, that's theft, robbery, burglary, fraud, etc., offences against the person, so things like assaults and some public order offences, and then what we might call offences against society. Drugs offences and drug addiction probably has an impact, or definitely actually has an impact, on all three of those crime types. That's not to say that every problem comes down to drugs. People commit crimes for a variety of reasons. They commit crimes for cultural reasons. It might be something that's been an expectation in their family. They can commit crimes because of socioeconomic issues. They might steal something because they don't have anything to eat. Or it could be that they, their crimes are related to an addiction. But certainly drugs is a big problem, but not all of the problem in society. Paul, I've got good news for you. I found a magic lamp. A magic lamp. Surprisingly, though, it only does police-related wishes and has a couple of rules. No wishing for more wishes no magic solving of crime, and no huge increase in funding. Yeah, I admit it's not the best lamp, but you do get three wishes 
for the police. What are they? My first wish would be that the police could be completely free from any political interference and they would have complete independence of policy as uh, Robert Peel said in 1829. The police need to be working fairly without fear or favour and that includes political fear or favour. Unfortunately, that is not the case currently. Every police force has some political leadership, whether that be a mayor, as in uh, London, the Met, or Greater Manchester Police, or a police and crime commissioner. All of those people that are at the top of each police force are affiliated to a major political party, which in lots of ways is a nonsense. It means that police cannot be completely independent of policy. So that'd be my first wish. My second wish would be that police would have much, much more stringent recruitment process to ensure that we were getting the correct people to be recruited into the police, setting a foundation at the start of a career. My third wish would be that the police was a meritocracy. If the police was a meritocracy, we would ensure that we would provide good leaders for the future. Currently, police officers can apply for promotion regardless of ability, regardless of leadership potential. What that tends to mean is that we get leaders who aren't keen to make decisions that are more concerned about their careers and their next promotion than they are about their staff and the public, which is not appropriate. So James, what do you think, were Ben and Emmy right, does crime pay? I don't think crime does pay. I'm going to be very bold and controversial and say I, th- I think crime is bad. Bold take, right. Yeah, this is what this is the, a dangerous contrarian like me. I think crime probably bad. That's, this is going to make a splash on the yeah, internet, yeah. James O'Malley. <laughs> James comes out against crime in a real shock to yeah, the I'm, brand. I'm looking forward to voting in the, the police and com- crime commissioner elections in May because I'm going to see the. I'm going to vote for the anti-crime candidate. Yeah, uh, that's, that's the vote winner. <laughs> James, thank you so much for this week. Uh, thanks to Tia Dondi for her contribution. Um, yeah, no, it's extraordinary. Go, if you do one thing after listening to this, go and watch her BBC Three documentary. It's genuinely sort of jaw-dropping viewing if you're a coward like me. Or if you're not. Yeah. If you're a <laughs> brave little soldier, also go and listen. Uh, and watch BBC iPlay now, Hunting the Rolex Rippers. Thanks to, to Paul Hogarth and our producer, Adrian Bradley. James, I will see you next week. See you next week. I will continue on my quest to try and do something interesting in between. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. 